Today we are uh, arriving at the center of this series that we're in, entitled The Gospel of God. Uh, this is the third week in this series out of Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The first two weeks we looked at the source of the gospel, seeing that the gospel is of God, it comes from Him, and then last week looking at the fact that the faithfulness and the reliability of God is at the heart of the gospel, that He speaks consistently with the way He's always spoken. And today we're coming to the second theme. First theme is the source, the second is the content, the third is the result. So today we're coming uh, to the content of the gospel. And uh, we had it modeled for us again tonight. If you don't have one of these cards, please pick one up and put it in your Bible or your purse or your wallet. Take it around with you and use this to memorize Romans 1, 1 through 7 as we spend some weeks together kind of pitching our tent and camping out in this text. It's a good place Uh, It's a good uh, passage to have written on your hearts. So, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Think for a moment how you would answer that question. If you are walking through Boston later this week and somebody just stops you and says, Hey, I I can tell you're a Christian, so what's the good news at the heart of your faith? If you're a follower of Jesus, the gospel is the foundation of your life. It's the source of your hope, even if that doesn't feel like it today as you walk in to worship. It is. And if you're here and you're asking questions about Jesus and investigating the Christian faith, then I would submit to you that the gospel is the key proclamation to be wrestled with, considered, and ultimately accepted and obeyed as the scripture speaks about. So it's the thing to wrestle with, this message, this declaration. But what is it? What is the gospel? Verses 3 and 4. So if you've got that card or if you've got your Bible, open up to Romans chapter 1. And in these two verses, Paul turns his attention to this question and clarifies for us the content of the gospel of God for which he says he has been set apart as an apostle. The gospel of God, he says, verse 3, concerning his son. Uh, We often talk about spiritual things in our household and uh, in trying to instruct and teach our children in the ways of God and... um, I'll often ask questions to the kids, and a couple of years ago, we were in a, a good season during which any question I asked, Jameson, in his toddler years, would just blurt out, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That was kind of the way he answered any question. It's a really, it's a good broken record to have if that's, you know, if you've got to have one. Um, and in a sense, that's what Paul's answer is to the question, what is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus concerning his son. Jesus, he is the content But what about Jesus? Because you can say a lot of things. Rightly so. We should say a lot of things. Really, every time we gather, it should be about Jesus. But what specifically about Jesus is the good news at the heart of the Christian faith? That he was a good teacher? That he was uh, great to listen to? That he was a great role model? That he practiced nonviolence? That he cared deeply about justice? Of course, as true as all of these things are, they are not the good news at the heart of of our faith. And this is really important. Paul continues his train of thought after a couple of qualifiers in verses 3 and 4, which we'll look at in just a moment, at the end of verse 4, with this declaration, the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus, the Messiah, or Christ, the Messiah, our Lord. So he says the gospel is fundamentally and firstly about the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God, which means in the very Jewish context in which that phrase arises, that Jesus is Israel's long-awaited Messiah, and as such, 
that Jesus is the world's true Lord or King or think president, if that helps. He's the leader at the top. It's true that Son of God, as used here in Romans 1, 3 or 4, comes to mean, even already means in, Paul himself, in Paul's writings, his, his, Paul's own writings, that Jesus shares in the divine identity of his Father. And while I would argue that that's certainly under the surface here in Romans 1, 3, and 4, what is very clearly on the surface is the declaration that Jesus is Israel's Messiah as the Son of God and that he is the world's true Lord. And we don't want to skip over this surface level and really intended meaning of these words to jump to something deeper, which of course is there, because we need to see that the heart of the gospel is that Jesus holds an office, a position of Lord and of King. This is the good news, the good news that we have to share. So if somebody comes up to you this week and they say, well, what is the gospel? I want you to answer, Jesus is Lord. He's King. You could say he's the Messiah. People probably won't know what that means. We'll dig into that in a moment. But that means that he is Lord and he is King. This is the dominant note of the gospel. Now, if you're struggling with this for a moment, let me be clear. If you were wanting to say that the gospel of God is, is grace or is love or is forgiveness or is the fact that God has made a way for sinners like you and me to know him and to have life with him and to be forgiven... It is very true that all of those things are good news, great news, in fact. And it's also true that they are woven into the very fabric of the gospel of God. But at the heart of the New Testament proclamation, and we see this throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, is the declaration that Jesus is Messiah and Lord. So the end of Peter's Pentecost sermon, Acts 2, he says... Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus who you crucified. He holds this office. Now, you might be saying, okay, so if that's the gospel, why is that good news? And to answer that, I want us to look at the first of the two qualifiers in these two verses. Verse 3, he says, concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh. So this explicitly links Jesus to the Old Testament story, which taps into a deep reservoir of meaning that we need to understand. We noted last week as we were looking at verse 2 and the consistency of God and how he speaks in Jesus with how he spoke in the prophets and the Old Testament story, that Jesus fulfills the story that's being told from Genesis through Malachi, these 39 books of the Old Testament, that they, as a story about God and his creation, are awaiting a fulfillment and that Jesus is the fulfillment. So, if we don't really get the story, then we can miss the significance of the declaration that Jesus is Messiah and Lord. Now, this story promises uh, a couple of key things related to this affirmation or declaration about Jesus. First, it promises that one who comes from David will sit on the throne forever. 2 Samuel 7 that he'll be king, that that David's kingdom will have no end. And then it promises as well, the Old Testament, that this one who comes from David will be the agent through which God brings about forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation, 
and the renewal of all things in creation. We read from Isaiah 11 tonight about the work that this one from the stump of Jesse, this, 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 this shoot from the stump of Jesse, will come, be anointed by the Holy Spirit, and will bring about justice and righteousness and peace and blessing and the new renewal of creation. These, um, as such, this Lord, this Messiah, would also be the one who is not only Lord over Israel, but is Lord over the nations. So that last, past, last verse in Isaiah 11 said, Of him the nations will inquire. Which comes back to a promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12, that through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. Promise to Abraham that one of his descendants would be the one through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Psalm 72 brings these two promises together in a royal psalm that declares the beauty and goodness of the king whose reign will have no end, who will bring peace and righteousness and justice to all the world and a blessing to the nations. This is the promise that when Paul says Jesus, the son, descended from David according to the flesh, he's tapping into this and saying, this is the story that he fulfills. This is what it means that he is king. And Paul's not alone in this affirmation, obviously. This runs throughout the New Testament. As we read in Luke 1, the angel tells Mary that the son to whom she will give birth miraculously will be great and will be called son of the most high. Son of God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That's the promise. Declared fulfilled in the word coming into Mary's womb. In John 6, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, they recognize his power. And what do they want to do with Jesus? They want to make him king by force, it says. They knew that they were in the presence of this great one that they hoped would be the promised Messiah and King from David's throne. And that's exactly what the crowds, if you remember the story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, that's what they shout out in praise as he rides in on a donkey, fulfilling in a symbolic act what the Messiah would do from one of the Old Testament prophets. And they say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. The whole claim of the New Testament and Paul taps into that here in Romans 1.3, is that this Jesus is fulfilling those very specific promises. And why is this such good news? Because it's the same reason that if you follow a politician and you're on his campaign or her campaign and you want that campaign to succeed and they're elected to office and the moment that they're elected, you're excited and overjoyed. Not so much, maybe you like that person, maybe you don't, not so much because that person has gotten that office, but because of what they will enact in office. The policies, the judges they'll appoint, the reform on certain laws that you care about, and so forth, so on and so forth. And what the Old Testament promises is that when this king comes, God will bring about through this king renewal of creation. What he'd always promised since sin entered the world. And he'll bring about reconciliation, the forgiveness of sins, the bringing together of those who are divided. And that's the great work that he'll bring about. And so, as Christians, as we proclaim the gospel that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, this is such amazing news because what we affirm is that through his reign 
as Lord, as Messiah. God is renewing creation. God is bringing about life where there was death. And through his reign, God is restoring and bringing about reconciliation by the forgiveness of sins and by the bringing together of the divided humanity into one new man in Christ. These are beautiful, big, cosmic realities that we celebrate at the heart of the gospel. This is our king's agenda. This is what the Old Testament promised that God would do through him. And so this is what we affirm. And that's why this is such tremendously good news. Because everybody here needs reconciliation. And everybody here needs renewal and new life and new creation. So when we declare Jesus is Lord, we're declaring the greatest news that could ever be proclaimed. Now, it's one thing to declare this and to celebrate it, but there's a question that kind of that confronts Paul as he turns to verse 4. Because those to whom he's writing within about 20 or 25 years of the life of Jesus will know that this proclaimed king had died on a Roman cross at the hands of his enemies. No Jew in Paul's day would accept a crucified Messiah. That was a massive oxymoron. This is what Paul elsewhere called a stumbling block to Jews. Why? Because of what we've just been describing. Because God was going to come back and reign and rule, and Jesus died on a Roman cross, as a forsaken criminal. How could Paul declare this Jesus to be Lord and Messiah? That's what verse 4 answers, as Paul says, and he, Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his, or really by the, resurrection from the dead. We studied this in Eastertide, the seven weeks following Easter, Sunday, together. The resurrection is the event that ensures us that Jesus is not a failed Messiah, who suffered the same fate as of many other would-be Messiahs in the first and second century. No, in fact, Paul says, he was raised in power by the Spirit of Holiness. The resurrection of the dead took place in Jesus, was brought from the future into the present. It's actually happened. So that long-awaited promise has begun to be fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. He was raised by the Spirit, and the Spirit is always the person of God that breathes life into dead things. Think Genesis 2. God breathes on the dust, and Adam comes to life. Think Ezekiel 37, the dry bones passage. And God breathes a new breath, a new spirit, upon the dry bones, and they begin miraculously to come back together. Well, it's that same spirit, Paul says, that was at work in the dead bones of Jesus to bring him back to life in a resurrected body, the beginning of the new creation. And this is Peter again in Acts 2. I keep going back to that first sermon because you'll see the gospel repeated there. Essentially, that sermon is, you killed Jesus, God raised him from the dead, and God made him Lord and Messiah. Now repent and follow and obey him. That's the sermon that Peter preaches. That's the gospel. 
He rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, he is who he always said he was through his actions and through his words. He is Lord and Messiah and the inheritor of the promises to David and to Abraham through whom all of this is going to begin to come to pass. The amazing thing is, is that this stumbling block the apostles realized as they spent time with Jesus after his resurrection and as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit himself, this stumbling block doesn't become a detail which needs to be kind of pushed to the back and hidden. It actually becomes the central plank of the king's mission through which he would accomplish reconciliation and renewal of all things. It begins in the cross. The cross was not a sign of Jesus' defeat. Rather, it was a sign of the greatest act of love that the world has ever known. The innocent king, the Son of God, suffered a humiliating death at the hands of his enemies for the sake of his enemies. This was Jesus' great William Wallace moment, if you will, crying out freedom and pursuing the enemy. Only, it's a bit different than what we saw in Braveheart. I know that's dated. Sorry. Um, Because Jesus' followers were not shouting and rallying and drawing their swords and running behind him, were they? They were busy betraying him and denying that they knew him. And yet Jesus, with incredible bravery, courage, submission to his Father, and most of all, a deep love for his Father and for you and for me, very personally, goes to the cross as a lamb led to its slaughter and goes silently as a sheep before its shearers in order that he might slay the greatest enemy that any of us could ever face in the reality of sin and evil and death itself. Through this death, through this victory, which is declared a victory unambiguously by the reality three days later of his rising from the grave. Jesus accomplishes and begins the work of his kingly office, which is to reconcile us to our Father and us to one another, and which is to make new the creation that is suffering bondage to decay because of evil, as he works and breathes that very same spirit into you and into me that he and his Father send together from their throne room in the heavens. I hope some of you will know our working definition of the gospel at Church of the Cross. If you've taken our essentials course, I hope you remember this. Say it with me if you know it. Jesus is Lord of the whole world, and through him, God is reconciling all things and making all things new. Let's do it one more time. Jesus is Lord of the whole world, and through him God is reconciling all things and making all things new. This is great news. This is the content of the gospel. I want to finish with three small points arising out of these two verses. In, in reflecting more deeply. We could spend a year working this through, and I trust that every week that we come together, we're really talking about this great news that Jesus is the risen King 
through whom God is reconciling all things and making all things new. First, this is personal. Notice what Paul says in verse 4. Jesus, the Messiah, and he uses the possessive pronoun, doesn't he? Our Lord. This isn't to, to minimize the cosmic lordship of the king. He will be Lord over all things. He is Lord over all things. Whether those things, be they human or non-created things, acknowledge his lordship or not. But what Paul, the point Paul is making with that little possessive pronoun is that this gospel is deeply personal. That Jesus doesn't just want to be Lord in some generic out there sense. He wants to be Lord because any good king wants his subjects to acknowledge their lordship and to come into submission under their lordship, and to yield their lives into the hands of their king, and to entrust their lives to the provision of that king for them, personally. This is a personal gospel. And as Lord Jesus wants those who live in his realm, that's all of us, to forsake all the other lords, including the big one of ourselves, that we often worship and fall down and obey. Success, affluence, power, beauty, and only offer to Him our allegiance, our lives. And we desperately need this personal King when we face the trials and temptations and struggles that we encounter day in and day out in a world that's not yet fully made new. How good it is to know that He is my Lord, that He is your Lord, when you get that phone call later this week, or when something disappoints you later tonight. Oh, how good it is to trust in Him. It's personal. It's political. Where's Paul writing this letter? Where is it going? To Rome. Who lives in Rome? Caesar. Who is Caesar? Caesar is Lord. Caesar is the Son of God. Caesar is the one who brings about a reign of justice and peace. Only it's phony. And it's not good news for the poor. And it doesn't look out for the least. And it's not expressed in any way through weakness and love, but through might and dominance. And when Jesus writes to the Christians in Rome, he declares at the beginning of his letter, as he'll expound for the rest of it, that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. It's a political statement that's dangerous to hold in the first century context. And it is a political statement that's dangerous to hold in the 21st century context for many of our brothers and sisters in the faith. And it is perhaps getting more dangerous in some ways to hold it here. This is not about privatized religion. This is not about what you do in the closet. Jesus says, I'm king. And that puts every other authority, every other king, every other political regime on notice that they are not autonomous, that they're not the final say, that one day they will give an account to a just judge who is their rightful king. And when we identify with that king in this world, and when we stand for justice in a world of injustice, we need the the courage to do so, knowing that our king is king over all. And that he stands and faces any other power of which we might be afraid. That we can have the courage to stand with him. This is a political message. It costs men and women and children their lives all around the world, even today. And it remains a political reality for us. It's it's personal, it's political, and thirdly, it's powerful. 
you catch what Paul said in verse 4? Declared to be the Son of God in power. We don't have power. The world tells us we have power. The Olympics tell you that you can do it. You know, if you work hard enough, train hard enough, you can have 23 gold medals too. But we don't. It's a facade. It's a lie. But we desperately need power. Not the kind of power that dominates and oppresses, that looks out for itself, but we need the kind of power that loves, that restores, that heals, that encourages, that reconciles, and that renews. And the amazing, amazing thing of the declaration of the gospel is that part of this is that Jesus was raised in power and that that the affirmation that that power that breathed life into Adam, that breathed on the dry bones, that breathed onto Jesus' dead corpse is the same power that's at work in you and in me. That same spirit lives and dwells inside of us, communicating to us the life and power of God, not so that we can become great and stand on the platform at the top of everybody else, but so that through our weakness, Paul says, his power is made perfect, so that as we bear witness to him, the true king, whose kingdom is upside down because he died for his subjects, and as we go out and die for those around us in love, that power would be displayed and our lives would be knit together in deeper and deeper ways, personally and communally, because of the genuine power of God at work in the gospel. The gospel is personal. The gospel is political. And the gospel is powerful. And the gospel is that Jesus is Lord. He's King, calling for us to yield to Him, to declare Him, to celebrate Him. That's the content of the gospel. Amen.